Influencers for Good is a new ethical news platform dedicated to featuring incredible people doing incredible things for the planet according to five thematic pillars people, planet, products, purpose, ideas, and solutions. It is time to bring followers to what matters most our planet and the good people working hard to protect it. A lot of the people and ideas featured on our platform and podcast don't have millions of followers, but they should. The problem is that they're too busy working really hard, and we are here to give them a lift up with your help. So don't forget to follow, subscribe, and share when you like our work. All right, so welcome back to Influences for Good. Today I'm uber excited because I've been waiting for this recording for quite some time, and we had to reschedule it, and against all odds, here we are in rainy Dubai uh, with the fabulous Andrea Russo. Hi, Andres, how are you? Welcome. Well, I'm so happy to be here as well. Thank you so much. And I, we've had everything between sicknesses and travel delays and now the epic Your voice going. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's been everything. So this is great to finally get to connect with you. So it's amazing that against all odds, here we are to bring you what I think is going to be one of the most exciting conversations in this first season uh, of Influences for Good. So just to give you a little background, I met Andres at a TED Global event in 2014. And I met him um, just a few days, a couple of days maybe before he actually gave his talk. And he was like also mysterious, not giving away what is it that he was going to uncover. So when he finally gave his talk, I was like in third row. And I was like a little kid ah, with all, you know, eyes open, jaw dropping and going, oh my God. And everybody, I can, I can assure you, everybody that was at that event immediately was like a tiny child wishing to be the next Indiana Jones. So Andres is a geothermal scientist who made an incredible discoveries a bunch of years ago. And I'm not going to give it away. I'm going to let, let him tell the story. And today he does all sorts of things. He's a Nat Geo explorer in, and, and I want to hear about what's coming next. So tell us a little bit about what is it that happened <laughs> that, so that launched I, you into fame. Something very small, really, I, like you know, every it's, day. It's, it's quite funny. Um, I... I guess the the Wikipedia version, if you want to put it that way, is I am I'm best known for my work in the Peruvian Amazon. I'm a geothermal scientist. I work on volcanoes and geothermal systems all over the world. I work in education. I work in media doing you know a lot of work with groups like TED, with National Geographic, um, other major, always scientific media. Almost done with my PhD. So hopefully, you know, God and advisor willing on that one. Um, but the thing that, that, you know, I think I'm best known for is my work at the boiling river of the Amazon. And, you know, in 2011, I became the first geoscientist granted the shamanic blessing to study this sacred place, which had had never been publicly revealed before. It was a place, it is a place that's absolutely just magical, um, a geothermal wonderland, a culturally relevant, just beautiful spot that, that for me has frankly changed my life in more ways than I can count so that's the so place. for those who really have no clue no clue what we're talking about you can watch his talks on ted.com I'll put all the links and uh, on the blog but maybe we need to give like the three minutes short version of what is it that happened like boiling river what in the amazon what were you talking about exactly Absolutely. So as it all really starts when I was a boy. So I grew up between Nicaragua, Peru and the United States. So I'm culturally confused, if you will. Um, but in Lima, when I was in Lima, Peru, right? So as a boy in Lima, my grandfather tells me this amazing story. 
he told me a bunch of stories, but there was one story that stuck with me and ended up, you know, redefining my life. And the short version is, it's a, it's a story of the Spanish conquest of Peru. So 1532, the Spaniards come, they meet at the Hualpa Emperor the Inca, who invites them to a peaceful meeting. They stage an elaborate ambush and it turns into one of the worst massacres in Peruvian history. They capture Atahualpa, hold him hostage, and then this is actually world, you know, record-breaking here. The ransom that they paid for Atahualpa, the Inca paid for Atahualpa, is the single largest ransom for a single individual in all of human history. It's over $2 billion in today's numbers. So in spite of that incredible ransom, the Spaniards again betray him, they kill him, and so start the next 40 years of fighting between the Inca and the Spanish empire and 40 years pass unfortunately for the inca the last emperor is murdered though killed assassinated right um the executed better said and the armies are destroyed the temples are destroyed the say the gold godi right the the tears of the sun or the sweat of the sun depending on the on the tradition you want there uh, has been melted down this thing that represented life itself and is being shipped back to spain to be used as money and unfortunately the only thing that rivaled you know the the stories that, or, I'm sorry, the, the only thing that rivaled the, uh, all the gold being shipped over there were the stories that kept being shipped over there. So save the legends. So all of these, these wannabe conquistadores, the wannabe conquistadors keep coming from, from Spain, keep coming to, the, to Peru, the new world, all hungry for another civilization to conquer, hungry for gold, hungry for glory. And this is where our legend really kicks off. So you tell me if I'm if I get excited about this and there's no, so but many I am excited. Details. Go, go, go. <laughs> so what ends up happening is and this is where it gets really interesting, because the according to the legends, this, these wannabe conquistadors that want their chance to get rich, want their chance to be famous. They go to the now humbled Inca, the now conquered Inca and ask them, where is another civilization to conquer? We want more gold. And out of vengeance, say the legends, the Inca tell them, you want more gold? Go to the Amazon. There's an entire city called Paititi, El Dorado in Spanish, made entirely of gold. And now the few Spanish that return from, from looking for Paititi come back with all these horrible stories. Shamans with powerful spells that drove men mad. Warriors with poison arrows that would kill you in a nick. Giant spiders as big as your hand that ate birds. Trees so tall they blotted out the sun. And a detail of a river, a big river that boiled. Now, I log this away. Over a decade passes. I'm working on my PhD, working on Peru's geothermal energy potential, understanding green energy for sustainability. Um, and I was helping out the government, actually, a group called Ingemet, the... the uh, Institute for Geology, Mineralogy, and uh, or Mining and Metallurgy of Peru, so government geological survey, uh, as far as mapping out geothermal spots in Peru. And I saw that there were spots in the jungle, and I thought, oh my gosh, what about the legend? And they were like, I don't know, Andres, that's a, I don't think so. And that started a two-year journey to figure out, could this be real? Um and, and frankly, after two years, all of the experts I spoke to from mining companies, oil and gas companies, the government institutions, academic groups, all said no, all said unlikely. And it makes sense. Um, you know, if you know the ring of fire, right, the circle of subduction that goes around most of the Pacific Ocean, where you have active volcanism, this is where two thirds of Earth's active volcanism is on land in the ring of fire, at Anillo de Fuego, right? This is where 90% of Earth's um, of Earth's uh, seismic events are, are thought to, to occur here in the Ring of Fire. But there's a big break where there should, quote unquote, be 
active volcanoes, but they turned off again, quote unquote, about two million years ago. And that was most likely a change in subduction style. We can get into that later if you want more geology. But um, the important thing is volcanoes turn off in most of Peru for since about two million years ago. So why would you expect to see a large, large thermal river in the middle of the Amazon, which is a sedimentary basin, in an area that is not known for having active volcanism? It, it didn't make sense. Right. So then... The last guy that I asked was a mining, um, a very senior geologist from a mining company. And he quite literally said, like, Andres, your geothermal work is really interesting, but you're asking stupid questions, you know, stop. <laughs> so, you know, tail between my legs, go away. And and then, you know, uh, I was at a family dinner and I was telling this story to my aunt and she's Brazilian. She's married to my Peruvian uncle. And she tells me, you know, no Andres, I've been there. And that's what kicked off the entire journey. At a dinner. At a dinner. Your aunt. Your aunt that for two years failed to reveal this information that was within your family. Were you mad? (laughs) You're like, how? How how is it that you don't know that I'm trying to do this work? Are you kept it for me? It's it's a side project. I think we all have side projects. And I think this is where, um, you know, when I imagine people, you know, I actually, this is, I'm a geologist, this is terrible. But I imagine caves. You're in a cave, and if you've ever been caving, sometimes you'll see a little tiny hole, and if you start opening that up or you start sticking your head in, right, that can turn into a beautiful chamber full of crystals or, you know, really weird, beautiful formations. Everyone has a secret world, right? And, and it's this thing of what are you going to talk to about? Mm-hmm. I have, I mean, we've known each other for some time, you know, only the last in our last conversation did I hear some crazy stories that I was like, "You have kept that all this time." <laughs> if, do you get the opportunity? Yeah. Do you get the opportunity to talk about all these details? And in this case, it's not. At I'll dinner. put it this way. Yeah, at a dinner. Let me put it this way. What? At it's a dinner. Incredible. It's, <laughs> at dinner. Like what? How everything in Peru important happens over food. That's for True. sure. Certainly <laughs> too. Absolutely. So exactly, like, right? Let's let's not underestimate conversations around dinner because <laughs> th- this is the new this is the new gold. Exactly. 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 So, so it how it went out, down? Because she said, "I've been there," and then oh, you went. You went what? What? It's You're kidding, it, right? Too I, much wine like, and tea. Exactly. You know? No, I mean it was so funny because I she is known for poking fun. Right. She okay. likes to mess with people. So I, I was she was like, I've been there. I've, I even swum in the river. And I'm sitting here like you swam in a boiling river. You know, like forget about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and definitely one too many Pisco Sours right there. But then, <laughs> you know, it took my uncle, who's a psychoanalyst. He's much more like, you know, he he's not as wild and free. We'll put it that way. Um, and, uh, and he's like, no, she's not kidding. You know, we've been there. And he, he tells me the first detail. It flowed hot for at least 200 meters. And then she chimes in. It's so hot. You can't touch the water. You can't even put your hand on top of the water because the vapor will burn you. It's as wide as, as a two lane road. And then my uncle chimes in again. It's protected by this powerful shaman and your aunt used to do indigenous rights work and make friends with the wife of the shaman. And then, I mean, it just, it just unraveled from there. So I was sitting there like, you've got to be kidding me. I grabbed my phone, immediately start looking. This is, this was um, 2009, I guess, when this first, no, I'm sorry, it was not 2009. It was early 2011 
when that happened. So I'm sitting here, I'm looking like crazy on my phone, trying to find any map, trying to pinpoint where they are, trying to match up a geologic story with their version. And there's no data. There's nothing, zero, nothing available online, which is something that, you know, you tell people, it's like, oh, that's weird. So like, um, but yeah, that's at the exciting. moment, oh yeah, it was... <laughs> And I got a little bit obsessive and my aunt was even like, it's okay. We'll find their email tomorrow. You know, like. Um, <laughs> and you're like, no, are you kidding me? We're not going to bed until we <laughs> nail this today. <laughs> but that, so I want to understand how did she, so supposedly this is really far. You have to walk along into the forest. It's like, it's a journey to get there. So how did your aunt even made it this far? And what was the circumstances for her to be there even before you? You know, she is a, she's an incredible woman. Um, you know, she has been avant-garde for, for decades, as far as I'm concerned. She's Brazilian, and she was very interested in social work, very interested in the legal side of, of social work and indigenous rights work later on in the women's empowerment work. And this is not like two years ago. This is like decades ago in many no, cases. There wasn't even a word almost for that. Exactly, exactly. And her name's, her name's Guida, uh, Guida, uh, and... Uh, just such a special person, but she was going into the Amazon as it was starting to open up. So she was accompanying sort of these, these um, social work groups that were trying to, you know, get people to, to, you know, connect to the greater, the greater Peruvian society. Um, she had been, <coughs> she'd been living in Peru and married my uncle. That's why they're living there. But um, yeah, in, in the process of, Let's just leave it women's health things because yeah. I don't think I'm qualified to talk about some of those things. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in the context of women's health things, she ended up meeting the wife of the shaman. And then it was like, we have, we have a, a sacred place. We have a healing place. You guys should come visit us. And then she came with my uncle. So that's, that's where it all started. Then little Andres grows up and here he comes over dinner and he's like, you what? You what? Let me go make a t-shirt right away first that says, who are you calling stupid to the guy exactly. that, that didn't want to support your inquiries? Wow, that's and, so and then, so then you went on a journey with her. She took you there. That's how, yeah, it's how did that develop? You were like, let's go tomorrow. I guess I could you even wait a minute. Oh, I, I didn't want to. And I was looking at every little, every academic paper, every email thing I could find. Um, but the next day, you know, we get, we get the phone number, no one's picking up. Um, and then she gave me the email that she had, no one responds. So it's like, no. And anyway, it actually took a couple months before. <laughs> Yeah, I tried to reach out. I, I was reaching out, like, without exaggeration, about once a week. Um, Did you get any sleep in between? Because I would have been like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I cannot. I need to be there. Is it true? Yeah, you know, and, it, and honestly, like, I really appreciate all the detail that you're letting me go in. Because it's the truth is, like, I, I was wor living and working in northern Peru at the time. And I go out and I'm working there on, on oil fields and looking at geothermal energy and how do we make a, this oil and gas work greener how do we make it yeah. minimize create transition yeah create transition the beautiful way to say it exactly and and then i'm back in lima almost six months later and i tell her you know no one's picked up no one's responded to the emails and she's like you know andres i should have probably warned you about this earlier but a random guy being like hey i'm a geologist and i specialize yeah. in geothermal energy show me your sacred spot that sounds super mm -hmm. cool and um, yeah. she's like yeah i probably wouldn't respond either 
And and she's like, they're also not very good at checking their email. And yeah. <laughs> I, I would imagine that. <laughs> understand yeah, yeah. That. You know, sometimes I'm not very good at checking my email. But uh, but uh, she's like, we need to go to the jungle. And it was, it was basically from one day to the other. She said, I'll take you. Don't worry. We'll go. And we, we purchased the ticket that night. And it was a, the next day we left, like it was going to be a short trip, but I had to see if this is real. Cause another interesting thing happened in the meantime, I found a lead that got uploaded from a geologic standpoint. Nothing had popped up. Um, you know, nothing had popped up as far as like something that would give me good information, but there was a paper that was, I found that had been taken out of old archives that described a quote unquote, small, warm spring in this area somewhere in this area so i'm thinking small warm spring doesn't really match up so we go off um the next the very next morning one hour from lima to pucalpa the city mm-hmm. of pucalpa in the central peruvian amazon uh fun it's a great name puca red ailpa soil so red soil the city of the yeah. red land the city of the red soil and then from there it was two hours by four by four truck to get to the small city of honoria on the river of on the Pachitea River. And then we took a peke peke, a motorized canoe, right? You turn on the motor, peke 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 peke, right? We met yeah. we met the shaman's <laughs> apprentice. Um the shaman's apprentice was waiting for the us. The shaman apprentice, I mean, this is already like a magical world. <laughs> Who gets to have that job? I'm the shaman apprentice. It's like, where is Merlin? And you know, is the sword in the in the rock? <laughs> this is but, so wonderful. You know, and what I love about the comment that you just made, and I'm going to take aside, you know, so I have a five-year-old son, right? And the other day, I, my wife and I switched putting him to bed. And Silvano, other, right? I remember. Silvano, yeah. Silvano, Silvano. is his name. And, and he asked me the other day if magic existed. And, and I had to tell him yes. And yes. I had to say, because like, we have things like what you're about to hear about the Boiling River. We have things like the Aurora Borealis. You can go to the bottom of the ocean and see cachalotes, the sperm whales, shooting out powerful sound blasts to stun giant squid and eat them. I mean, even the fact that right now we are on opposite sides of the world. It is the late night for me and early morning for you. And we're connecting like this is 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 really magical. And it is. If I can add one more thing, because you're in a, so I, I tell this story regularly because now I do a lot of, I do a lot of social work now, right? Of course. One of, one of the, I think it was in 2016 or 2017, I'm sitting on the roots of this massive tree, huge, as long, as big around as your car is wide. And we're sitting on these roots with one of my Amazonian colleagues and, and she's telling me, you know, Andres, it's really amazing that we have all of the, that you have all of these foreigners non-peruvians right that want to come here to see our trees you know and we'll talk more about this later i promise yeah um and she's like i don't get it you know if i could go anywhere in the world i'd go to dubai is what she actually said and she's like i want to see the big buildings there you know i want to see that you know i want to see this other world and it's just this beautiful thing of the magic's always on the other side and i think that i i think we have to we have to look for the magic in our everyday. I think. To that, I want to add that when I went to the Peruvian jungle in Catera to to do the, the mm. documentaries with DSA, the, the was mm-hmm. round in Catera, we went on like on a sort of a biodiversity hike, amazing around, amazing. and uh, I remember the tree that gave me that same feeling that they call it la lumpuna, 
La lupuna, of course, yeah. Oh my God. You like you are in front of this. It's not a tree. It's like the presence of centuries of wisdom that are still standing there. And you just want to hug it, although there's like a lot of weird stuff around it. And you're like, maybe not. (laughs) And then you hear all the legends about that as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was just so fascinating. So I do do understand, you know, the Western wants to come there. The others wants to see the tower. So let's swap. I'm coming. It's human human nature. I'll come tomorrow. And and as an aside, you you mentioned Incaterra, and I've worked. I have to say, I've worked with a lot of ecotourism groups. They are by far the most incredible ecotourism group that I've ever gotten to work with. They're, you know, spearheading the reforestation project at, at Machu Picchu, doing stuff with the spectacled bears. I am so impressed with the great work they're doing. Um, and then on the other side, the Lupuna tree, it is really a like an important, you know guardian tree of the forest it's treated in many of the cultures you know you can always tell a lupuna because it's got that belly you know yeah and so in some cultures it's it's taboo to even pee close to one you know so you shouldn't do that uh it's some in some cultures in in other ones they associate it with there's a there's an image of a one of the ones that i found most meaningful and beautiful is like the imagery of like a pregnant a pregnant female with the with the tree that has that same sort of shape of the belly so there's this beautiful like mother guardian you know energy that they describe around that tree in this in the the cultures and the myths and the traditions and the legends um then again so I- it's I just want to say, it must be really amazing to be your kid, though, because you're you're a kid, you're five. Yes, your daddy does magic exist, and your daddy discovered the boiling river. <laughs> it's like it's like being Indiana Jones' little child. <laughs> Have you found anything interesting like, recently? And in all fairness, I mean, you're so kind to say these things, but like, what's in your background? I mean, a couple of things. Number one, like, I do want to make it clear that I I did not discover the boiling river. And they're about to hear what happened, right? I was guided there by my aunt, and then I got the blessing of the shaman to bring it to the world, right? That was to study it. And that that is very important to say. On the other side, I mean, we get used we get used to what we have in our everyday. I mean, I look back here, they had like, you know, rock samples from all sorts of cool projects from, you know, all over the world. Um but this is just the stuff on dad's wall as far as my son's concerned. So he doesn't, <laughs> he'll figure it out later. You know? Yeah. And they're just going to go, Oh my God, is that my dad? Wow. Yeah. So we'll see. You have a ticket in your hands and you're heading <laughs> towards the boiling river. <laughs> and for, so first of all, I want to know the range of emotions there. You know, I, I can't even fathom when I think about it, how, how excited you must've been at the possibility Maybe there was nothing, but the possibility was pretty high that there was something. Absolutely. You know, it was, when I think of that entire first trip, I feel, I just imagine a knife edge. Because what people don't realize is like, I was on this knife edge on one side, there was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of, this is so cool. Just getting to explore and figure out what's there and ask the questions. But on the other side, um, Unfortunately, some of the people from my from my some of my overseers for the PhD were not excited about it. Why are you wasting your time? Why are you spending your money? This is an offshoot, a project. You know, you you like to think that that in the world of academic science, a lot of it's like curiosity driven, but frankly, yeah. that's not always the case. And I had there, I had a lot of, and on top of that, financially at that moment, I was kind of short on cash and it was actually 
And this is why I will always be so deeply grateful for National Geographic. That was my first, that was the last $300 of my very first National Geographic grant that allowed me to, to go. It was a three, it was the $300 that like changed my life there. So, um, you know, those grants are still there. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) You know, how like such a, you know, smallish amount of money can Mm -hmm. make a a, a tremendous difference at a moment in time where the choice could have been, let's not spend it and be sensible. You could have been talked out of that Mm -hmm. by someone that would have said, don't be an idiot because this is the last money of your grant. You're going to go there for nothing, disappointment, and then you don't have any other money. Mm -hmm. Plus, you're going to look like a stupid person who follows not rationality. And mm-hmm. then you took a leap of faith, and uh, mm-hmm. and and look at where we are today. What made you? What made you take the the leap of faith? That's what I'm really interested in. Did you have like an inner voice? It was like, go, go. Was, was the river calling you? <laughs> I, you know, I, I the shaman would say the river was calling me. He did, but I would say that. I think exploration, we've forgotten what that word, I think there's a lot of words and you'll hear me say this, that we've forgotten what they mean because we say them so often. You know, one of the things in the mainstream, oh, this is awesome. Everything's awesome now. Like what is truly awesome? You know, like that's like, that's an easy one, but you'll hear me later on talk about the word sacred. The boiling river changed what the word sacred means. And I promise you, I'll leave you with that. We'll, We'll talk about that later. But in this case, exploration, People love to talk about, let's explore, let's do that. You cannot have exploration without risk. It's impossible. It cannot exist without risk. If I know the input and I know the output, great. If A, then B. If A plus B, then C, great. That's not exploration. That's following a formula. So um, honestly, what made it all happen was the fact that, because the guy in charge of me at the time um, he didn't want me to go and he was very clear about it. And he even said, well, you know, you'll have to pay for this yourself. And it was that Nat Geo grant that was given to me and no one else that I had control over. So it was, again, it was that $300 that changed my life. That was like, life's an adventure and life's an adventure. And it's, um, so there was a need I, to explore that. Just before we go into how you, when you, when you get there, what happened, yeah, did yeah. you have, because this is something that I think about it a lot. When there's something that is so deeply sacred and important for the planet, for what this river meant and was to history and to the current people living there, do you stop and think, should I bring it to the public? You know, let's, the mentality... let's follow the story because you yeah. are asking a great question that I want to make sure because there the is audience... a moral conundrum, right? I think at one point you get to what is is it the greater good to bring it out, or do I keep it as a secret and keep working with them, but don't tell anybody because God knows what happens when it gets out in the open. And so you... I'll let you I'll let you continue. Yeah. So let's. So as I said, we were on the Peke Peke. The the shaman's apprentice is guiding us. Fast forward, right? I I do end up meeting the shaman. And I was that at that point, I was quite nervous and it was really interesting because he didn't say much, right? He was looking at me and it was his, all I could think of was like, you know, I I love snakes. I love reptiles. I've grown up with snakes and reptiles all my life. And the gaze was, you know, he was just staring at me, not moving very much. It was almost like a snake that, you know, is watching every move, but not very much expressionless. 
And then I remember like explaining everything and being all like, this place is amazing. And, <laughs> and then, you know, I just see this big, beautiful smile just creep across his entire face and the beautiful white toothy, toothy grin, I'm sorry, toothy grin. And, and he just starts laughing. And it was just such a rich laugh. And he said, yeah, of course, you know, yeah, definitely come, come study it. And, 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 you know, we, we talked more and over time, oh, cause at this point I've led 15 expeditions to the boiling river. We now have, and by the way, just to, I should have, we should have prefaced this earlier. The boiling river of the Amazon is up to now the largest documented thermal river in the world. You're looking at, a, it's about a nine kilometer river system, all of it, but the lower 6.24 kilometers are thermal. A lot of that is hot enough to kill you. At its widest point, it can get to about 30 meters wide. At its deepest point, it can get to about four and a half meters deep. And remember, this is all very hot water. I'm holding up a, a cup of hot tea right now to, to try yeah. to show you guys. And you, there are average, the hottest average temperatures in the river and can get to the low 90 degrees C. And please remember, 47 degrees C, 47, is hot enough to start burning us. At 90 degrees C, at those temperatures, at those volumes, the American Burn Association will tell you, less than a second to get second to third degree burns. And I've seen that happen, that's real. And the hottest temperature I ever measured was a spring at 99.1 degrees C. I mean, and all of this over 700 kilometers away from the nearest active volcanic center. So you've got thermal waterfalls. The biggest one is over six and a half meters tall. I mean, you have a, and visually you have to envision it. Like, like I was just, I was just telling someone this the other day, the first, the first time. So we were with the shaman's apprentice. We hiked for an hour when I first got there, right? It's, whew, it's a hot day. We climb up to this big, tall, uh, this big, tall, um, I, Colina, uh, the hill, right? We're at the yeah. top of this loma, right, thing. Um, and then I hear this noise in the background. It sounded like a static. And and he, I'm like, what is that? And he points out to the valley below and he says, it's the river. And I had seen something that looked like smoke and I thought, okay, that looks like a fire or something. But he says, no, that's the river. So I run down, I run through the trees, run through the community, get down and in front of me, there's, you know, these these... 20 meter walls of green that were the jungle just shooting out of the ground on either side of this beautiful river there were these ivory colored stones and then the river itself was this beautiful transparent turquoise with a thin veil of vapor that was just very much there and it was a hot day but you could see that vapor and that vapor was going up all the way to the treetops it was amazing and I mean it was I, I, that from that very moment, that was my first time I saw the river and I was like, I need a temperature. So I run down, there was a little cliff to get, to get to it. So I remember walking down and I think, you know, it's interesting because we talk about, you know, the rush of everyday life, every, like you need to take those moments of pause. And I just remember that my first breath at the boiling river was really like that first moment of pause, because I remember going down these steps and just breathing in and it was like breathing in a sauna like una sauna you know like you yeah yeah it's hot as you go you breathe into your nose burns you feel a little hot. Yeah. it burns exactly it burns your nose you feel it in your throat you feel it in your lungs and you know your lungs are there you know it was a it was a call to to awareness 
that first temperature I measured was about 86, 87 degrees Celsius. And and is this sulfurous water, like the ones you find normally at the springs, or are we going to get into what, more? <laughs> oh, this is what's amazing, you know, like on this 6.24 kilometer thermal river system, there is only one spot, only one spot where we have measured anything sulfurous. And we've got, we, well, we're almost done with working on that scientific paper. Hopefully it's, that will be put in the public, uh, put in the, submitted for publication in 2024. But um, it's, you know, we're looking so at, the, at the source. That's boiling fresh water. Are they using it for cooking? Uh, yeah, <laughs> you, you could literally make your tea. <laughs> you yeah, definitely. In fact, the the first morning I was there, I woke up the next day, and I met. I saw the shaman's apprentice. You know, he was there, and he it was like, "Hey, man, do you have any tea? Any coffee?" And he literally gave me like, a mug. Yeah, he did. He gave me a mug and he gave me a tea bag and he pointed <laughs> oh to the river. And I'm God. And I'm walking down again. I'm a, I'm a geothermal scientist. I've been on these systems all over the world, and I'm thinking, wait a minute. The last volcano, the last geothermal system I had been on before going to this one, was the Momotombo volcano in Nicaragua, and we did an elemental composition test on those waters, and every nasty, like heavy metal you can think of, was in the okay. last geothermal system that I was at, and then in some geothermal systems you've got things like I don't know brain-eating amoebas that you don't want to mess with. You know, yes, so you were, you, were you hesitant before you drank the tea? You're like, well, well maybe after I do the half tests. <laughs> exactly. <I'm not> sure. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So I was like, should I do this? But whatever. I thought I looked at everybody else and I said, well, you know, when in Shaman is Rome, alive. So <laughs> exactly all of them. Right. So I, I got, I got some water, smelled it. It smelled good. It smelled clean, you know, um, and then I drank it. And effectively enough, you know, that the waters are, unbelievably clean now 15 field seasons later i can tell you i've compared their electrical conductivity the, the amount of minerals that you see in that water to things like you know evian for example evian super fancy <laughs> it's, it's fancy the world's fanciest water evian right it's cleaner than evian it has less minerals no, than don't, evian don't say it out loud before people come and want to get it this is it's not true. No. Not, not, not as clean as Evian, but you know. No, no. <laughs> so listen, I, I'm, I'm interested about one thing. Obviously, there is the, the whole scientific component is huge in this discovery. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the other component of the people, of the community that has been living there and, and around that, that can equally provide, well, not scientific evidence, but a lot of information of evolution that may you may translate this run as something scientific as well given the story so you spend time i'm imagine talking to the community how big is this community how many people live there and uh, what so kind of crazy stories have they told you of <sighs> big animals falling into it and boiling and then they're like oh dinner's ready <laughs> <Let's get out." laughs> yeah, I, I you know people have cooked in it there's there's there are so many ways that we could take this that would fill up not only an hour, but hours. <laughs> I and know, days. like a documentary. Uh, but but what I, I think the most important thing is, you know, when I when I talked to Maestro, Maestro Juan is the guy, um, the, the shaman, the main shaman there. When he gave me permission to study this place, he asked me for something quite peculiar. And that was, you know, could you help us bring it to the world responsibly? And, wow. and, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to fast forward and bring up because bring hours yeah. and days of conversation, but you know, let's look at the Amazon. I will, let's take a step back. Yeah. There's a couple of problems. First, I'm going to go in with the scientific ecological yep. problems. And then I'm going to mention specifically the Peruvian cultural problems that we have. 
currently we are losing about roughly two soccer fields, two football fields of Amazon rainforest every single minute. That's an average that can, you know, vary slightly, but more or less, let's go with that number. Um, that is unsustainable. That is unsustainable on every single level. A lot of my work deals with stable isotopes of natural water. So looking at the oxygen, the hydrogen, and the different types and what the fingerprinting of these of these isotopic the isotopes right the, the families of elements um, tell us about the origins of the water and how the deforestation is impacting rainfall how it's impacting this ecosystem and that is that is a whole frightening can of worms that we can get into but think two football fields two soccer fields every single minute he told me, Andres, we can no longer conceal to protect. You can't hide things to protect them anymore. You can't. The world will find out. And who is going to find out? Who is going to be the one that shows those things to the world? Are you going to have some... Andres with all the ethical approach and the love for the land and the love for the shaman. So, yeah. But and that, and that might be. And for me, I mean, I can tell you, like, we have tried our very best. You know, I the, the week before before the TED Talk, when I got offered to give the TED Talk, I called them first and I said, hey, can I do this? And I explained it as best I could. Later on, I told them, hey, it just once again, I want to check in with you guys, make sure everything's okay. You guys might get a lot more attention. If you are not okay with this, I will say no. Mm-hmm. And I told, and I gave them three different opportunities because for me, it's like th- I asked three times and then, you know, case closed. Um, and then... And then this is where I'm very grateful to Ted as well, you know, because like Ted really helped, you know, when in, in the book, right, the Boiling River book, yeah. they they even allowed us a little bit more time to ensure that, you know, the, the shaman and company, which I thought had, they had said they had their owned their land, but then it turned out they didn't officially have the title to their land or in their concession in this case. Um, and I mean, We've tried to do everything as responsibly as humanly possible. Every decision has been made um, after lengthy discussions with the shaman, his wife, his community, um, because we want to do this right. I firmly believe there is a moral responsibility to science, firmly. And I have delayed my PhD for this. I have suffered for this principle. um, And I have, you know, incurred the wrath of they're always first world people, <laughs> but, um, but you know, like that, that tell me I'm doing something wrong, but on the other side, the shaman and his people, you know, officially own their land. Now, actually to on Saturday, after years of working, we finally have a really big meeting with the local government there in 2016 wow. was the first time that the, the regional, um, the district governess is a ingeniera Daisy Heidinger at the time, but anyway, she was the the regional governess, um, the district governess um, of Puerto Inca, where we're located. Actually, came to the site to visit. Um, in twenty, another one in twenty nineteen, we signed an agreement with the hydrocarbon ministry of all of Peru because there is an active oil field close to the Boiling River. Um, we signed an agreement that opens up or catalyzes is the best word to use catalyzes ecotourism, conservation, and scientific work in all of Peruvian oil fields. This is an area almost the size of the country of Spain. Like wow. we've been doing our very, very, very best to to hold true to our principles and walk that walk. Um, 
and and I and yeah, I think it's the right way to do it. You know, we've what has the last hundred, two hundred, three hundred years shown? Um, there are things that don't work when you leave people yeah. behind. That'll catch up with you. And this goes to the second thing: we're losing two soccer fields of Amazon every single minute. That's the one liner that you need. Uh, yeah, we're losing two soccer fields of Amazon every single minute. That's the one liner you need to remember for the ecologic part. But for the personal side, I'm I'm Peruvian. We grew up with songs like, this is a very famous one for us, Este es mi tierra, este es mi Peru. This is my land, this is my Peru. This is a very, very famous Peruvian song. And you hear about, you know, the richness of our coast and the breadbasket of the Andes. And oh yeah, behind the Andes is an area that you have to conquer. Awaiting to be conquered is a better translation. Behind the Andes, the Amazon is 60%, roughly 60% of Peru's national territory. And we have been calling it for many generations, the, you know, whatever's behind there is an area to conquer. What I have found in the last over a decade of working in the Amazon and doing anthropological work and social work and a bunch of other things, I mean, the last open air slave market for Amazonians in, the, in Peru supposedly closed in the early 60s. Before even even colonial times, let's go back further. The Inca tried to conquer the Amazonians on multiple occasions. They did not like each other. <laughs> the Inca were mad that they couldn't conquer the Amazonians. And still to this day, like one, uh, one of the ladies that raised me, who's, who sadly is, is no longer with us, but the first time I told her, hey, I'm going to go to the Amazon. I want to work there. And she looked at me and, and said, why would you go work with los, she literally said, los chunchos calatamanta, literally the little naked wild things. And you still have a lot of the prejudice. From Inca times, you have prejudice. From colonial times, you have prejudice. The Republican times for Peru, you have prejudice. So you've got an area, 60% of Peru, where most of the people have had to face prejudice for centuries. That they have been told that their land is not worth anything, that they're that their traditions are not worth anything. How do we change that? Which is a typical colonialist approach. You first you destroy verbally and mentally what you want to conquer, so you make mm-hmm. it workplace Absolutely. in everybody's eyes, so nobody wants it and you can take it. That's Absolutely. Absolutely. We've been it doing is. that forever. And that's why like I say, and I will say this unabashedly, and I'm very well aware, I'm a conservationist, I'm an environmentalist, and I know the pros and the cons of what I'm about to say, and I ask that listener wherever you are in the world hear me out first i firmly believe that the very best thing you can do for the amazon by far is go visit personally you go visit make sure try to make it the best most nice ecotourism place you can that's responsible tourism because obviously irresponsible tourism is horrible and i do know I'm a climate scientist. I'm well aware of the environmental footprints and I'm well aware of the carbon footprints. I get it. I get it. But you, I the, the challenge I have is try to look at the world with both eyes and look through the eye of not just the person wherever you are in the world, but also the person who lives full-time in the jungle. I have a goddaughter in one of these communities. I have many dear friends, dear mentors in many of these communities. Look at it through their eyes. Imagine... For the past couple of centuries, people have told you that your people, uh, your jungle, uh, you know, like this is not the proud thing that we need to be proud of in, in Peruvian history. How do we change that? When my friends see someone from across the globe come to their jungle 
give them money to show them a tree, to tour them around the jungle, to look at the animals that were, you know, only good, you know, shot and defeathered or de-skinned or something like that, that changes people's minds. I, you know, I might spend a couple weeks, maybe a month, a couple months at this point. In the past, it was more down there at this point. They're there full time. Yeah. They are there full time. They are the people that we need to empower. They're the people that we need to give the voice to. They're the people that we need to invite as as partners for this. And, One and of have the... you seen have you seen a change since the yes. discovery to now in the pride of the people and their participation or their ability to feel more involved in the protecting and showing and telling the stories of the Boiling River? And again, Absolutely. how many people are we talking about around these communities? Do you know? So it, it fluctuates because again, so this is part of the, part of the, the part of where it can get very complicated, but at, at most you might be dealing with a couple thousand people in the greater community because it's not, it's the Boiling River area. And a yeah. lot of times, um, you know, you've got a lot of people who might just go to the Boiling River and then, okay, maybe there's about 20 people in this community and then you go to the other community there's about 30 in that one but then there's about 15 in the other one and then you go over here and there's the other little city but then there's another little town then there's another little town over here another little town over there so it is a it is a much greater area than people often give it credit for and so let's say the maximum reach of a couple thousand people that could be impacted by this and so it's it's a it's a good group but oh man there was something that i needed oh yeah one thing that i really wanted to say too that i've learned um i was talking to an old to an older guy there at the river now when when the the guy you know knew his trees very well he said something interesting once um and he, he said if you want he said there's a saying if you want to kill a tree in the forest no matter how big it is chop down the trees around that tree and it will fall and if you've been to the Amazon, like you have, you will know that in most of the time you're, you're walking on tree roots, tree roots yep. that are interlaced. And that, you know, that calls into question. You hear people talk about, oh, well, the, the tree, its roots go deep, right? Most trees that I've seen, their roots are not that deep, relatively speaking. In fact, some of the big, big, huge, monstrously large trees, their roots are not deep. Their roots go out. And oftentimes they intertwine with one another. And in that intertwining, they create a net that that creates ecosystems, that benefits soils, that holds together landscapes so that erosion is lessened. You get all of these amazing benefits. And then now we're starting, the, the, not my work, but the work of other botanists, highlighting nutritional sharing of trees, highlighting potential non-human communication in some other forms. Um, not my specialty, so I'm not going to get into that, but definitely worth looking at, worth, worth questioning. Yeah, I read an amazing book called The Hidden Life of Trees. And, oh, uh, yes, that's it, one. It's fantastic. It talks about this interconnectivity and how the roots communicate with each mm -hmm. other. It's almost like the World Wide Web, but for tree roots. <laughs> and, uh, um, and how literally how they bypass trees that are not from the same family to provide nutrients to a baby tree of the same family wow. that is two trees yeah. down. And it's like, oh, no, you're not with us. Let me bypass you. You go to your Absolutely. mom and dad. <laughs> so it's fascinating. Really incredible. So much intelligence. It's just, I mean, with the fungi and mushrooms, mycelia, another layer of complexities into biosystems communications. Oh, 
And absolutely. And, you know, it's, there's so many angles that we could go with this, but you know, what we're, tr this is, this is actually the presentation I'm giving the government and the, the local government in a few days. So we're going to have this big meeting with in, in like in the boiling river area with, with the, the political powers to let them know there is currently, there is currently a legal infrastructure to easily be able to um, exploit the land there. And we've been trying to change that. So I honestly, I'm very hopeful that, that th I mean, things are looking to go well. So I'm, I'm hopeful that in the next three years time, we'll be able to uh, step into another phase of the conservation work. This is truly one of the most spectacular ecosystems on the planet. And I travel for a living. I promise I wouldn't be making it up, but it's, it, there's, there's just so much there. And to go on your, yeah, no, please, please continue. Well, and that's another thing too. So I, I work in geothermal systems, right? We, we I started a, the nonprofit many years ago, a Boiling River Project, to focus specifically on the Boiling River. But in the process, something amazing came up, right? And it was that there's geothermal systems all over the world. Every single geothermal system, every single major geothermal system that I have ever seen, every single volcano that I've ever seen that's significant has a story, a human story, a cultural piece where it's influenced art, culture, human knowledge, inspired humanity in some way. I mean, you're originally Italian, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, talk about a, 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 we got the word volcano, volcanology from you guys. You know, like it was Vulcan. It was, the Greeks would call Hephaestus, right? It, you got these stories. You go to places like Saturna. Um, I've Love it. I have one of my <sighs> fondest memories of being like no, nine or ten years that. old. And my uncles took me there. We were like in Tuscany. They took me there. And, oh, okay. uh, and I had never seen anything. I knew I'd never seen anything like that before in my <laughs> life. So, it, and at the time, it wasn't like a touristy <laughs> spot like it is today. It was just oh, my goodness. so incredible. And they're like, you, you could go in. You were basically like maybe two or three other people there. And, oh, my uh, goodness. And, wow. What a and gift. It, and it was it was just so beautiful. And I remember I came out and like, I had some rings and stuff on and I'm like, Oh my God, everything is like rusty. What happened to me? <laughs> it, it, but the skin was amazing. And it, oh it, it was just, yeah, it was, it was wonderful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, think about beautiful it. Beautiful world. Absolutely. And beyond that, like the, the myths, the legends associated with that place or the impact on humanity. Think about this. Humans love hot springs so much that we not only, have our you could be onsens in japan or hot pots in, in you know different parts of europe um terme right um but you go to any bathroom and we have a bathtub and most humans fill those bathtubs with warm water so you're creating your artificial hot spring yeah. in your bathroom you know yeah. the word it's it's really wild and culture after culture and it's funny because right now um, I'm not sure when this is going to be coming out, but just to date our interview, right? You know, currently the uh, Grindavik in southern Iceland is very much in the news right now because of a volcanic eruption. And, yep. and you know, it's interesting because I, I've, been working, I've been working on volcanoes for a long time. And what amazes me constantly is even though, especially the modern news cycles really like to focus on the scary, destructive side of the volcano. 
throwing Books a drone called? inside a, a volcano during an eruption. That, that's a new thing, you know? You know that, <laughs> Literally burn a thousand dollars or two <laughs> for a great shot. Well, I hope it was a good shot, I guess. But, <laughs> but like, what I'm getting at is most cultures view volcanoes as, um, you know, almost every culture that I've seen, every culture that I've studied has fertility associated with volcanoes has healing associated with volcanoes has creation associated with volcanoes and i mean you see this even with with vulcan himself right he's forge he's creating um all of the all of the thermes in, in in italy right all of the the bath the roman bath houses in literally bath um places of healing go back to the amazon places of healing Again, the Boiling River, a place of healing. In fact, we did a an incredible show with the BBC um, called Great Rivers. Amazing group of people that I really enjoyed that project. And but what was so funny is when they were interviewing me, they kept being like, "Oh, it's a he- these are healing waters. Everyone's talked about it. Now tell me what minerals are in it." And I'm sitting here like, almost nothing. And they're like, "What do you mean almost nothing? It's got to have healing minerals. It's got to you know." Da, da. And it turns like, out the pure water is what heals. <laughs> and again, you go, so you mentioned something funny. It's what's in your background, what's in your everyday. Today, you turn on your, your caña, your faucet, anywhere in the world, in the first world, developed world, big, well, no, I don't like the term developed world, sorry, because uh, there's some things that we're more developed in than others uh, in the third world. <laughs> well, that's what we can sure. talk about, argue about that later. Um, but you, in the first world, you turn on your faucet um, and, and you get access to clean water. That's a new thing. In fact, that's even a special thing for many parts of the world. If you have a big river system where you can literally grab your hot water and drink it directly, you don't have to cook it. It doesn't have anything well, in it. it you've worked in the I Amazon. tell you what, mm-hmm. back in Italy, in Tuscany, I remember again being like, I don't know, 18 or something, and going visit a friend uh, who was in a nearby town called Montespertoli. And uh, mm-hmm. there was dinner time and the father was like, come with me, we need to go and get the water. And I thought we were going to go to the supermarket to buy the water. And so we were kind of tasked to go follow, to carry the <laughs> cases of water. And instead uh-huh. he takes out of the, he parks on the side of the car on this mountain. And then he takes out no. the cases of, of glass, of, uh, you know, glass bottles. And it's yeah. like, come on girls, get going. And so there was a stream <laughs> coming down straight from the mountain. The water wow. was unbelievable like the most amazing water i've ever drank it was a bunch of years ago i don't know if it's still going i haven't been back but that's how it used to be right oh and how how beautiful is that story on one side and how tragic we go back to global environmentalism you can't do that anymore not in most places on earth you can't i mean think about it our ancestors were able to drink clean water from many places like this or how about this we we're um you know, of, of all my life growing up when I was a kid, they would, I remember watching documentaries that would say, we will one day get to the day where doctors will tell, you know, a, a couples that are hoping to have children to avoid eating wild caught seafood because of mercury contamination in bioaccumulation, right? In the food, in the fish that you need to avoid. And I grew up and I, and I grew up just hearing that. And I was like, it was always in the scientific realm, always in the documentary realm. And then when we finally, my wife and I were finally ready to you know, start trying to have our first child and go to the doctor, the doctor literally said those words. And I sat there thinking, oh my God, this is happening. And they warned us about this, you know, decades ago. Um, and yeah. here we are. Yeah. We are yeah, arguing about listen. clean water. No, we yeah. didn't. We're arguing about clean I mean, water. 
Air. The problem right now is that we can't trust, even even if I was seeing that water coming down the mountain today, I don't know if I would trust that it's good enough for me to drink it. The same way that I remember picking up grass mm -hmm. and I'd I, I remember I used to love walking in the fields and picking up the grass and then mm -hmm. eating the, the other side of the grass, not the one that's up because it's got that sweet uh -huh. taste and it's just tender. Uh -huh. And uh, I would never do that because I was like, who peed on it? What kind of pesticide are on it? What, I mean, am I going to die just for trying? I would never even try right now. I would be too and worried that there's so much on that grass that does not belong <laughs> in my body that I better not risk mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. I mean, and we're the only species that is poisoning itself. Let's be frank. Yeah. There's no other species on the planet that would do that to themselves willingly. And I'm it not is saying, so... Hmm? Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm not saying super willingly, but this is where we got. This is where we're at right now, where our fish that has got more plastic in the stomach of the fish. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it is tragic. And I think that right now, what, what shocks me about that, though, and this actually takes me directly back to the Boiling River. I, I mentioned the word sacred. Yes. Working at the Boiling River has totally changed my perspective on the word sacred. And it relates to everything that you just mentioned. You see, prior to working there, the sacred in my mind, okay, that word was attached to the cathedral, you know, the, the basilica, the church, the mosque, the, the, the temple, whatever. And... Um, after working there, after being in the jungle, after, you know, experiencing another point of view, what I walked away with is to be sacred means to be necessary for life. That's, that's it. At its core, the most ancient meaning of that word is to be sacred means that we need it to live. You need clean water because it's sacred. You need clean air because it's sacred. You need clean food, the soils to grow that food, the interpersonal connection, because that is what sacred means. And I think that we've forgotten that. And I think that it is, you know, it is absolutely wild for me as a scientist, um, because, you know, I... Uh, I'm well aware of the world I work in. I try to look at the world with, with both eyes because I do have a lot of traditional knowledge upbringing, but I have a lot of Western scientific upbringing and I'm going to stay far away from pseudoscience and I know where science's lane is and I know where traditional knowledge's lane is and I try to find the truth using both perspectives as best I can. Um, but I, I think it's fascinating to see how what traditional knowledge systems used to call taboo or still call taboo we're kind of calling that into question now with with modern science as well, in the sense of, you know, we need to protect 30% of the oceans at least by, you know, 2030. That sounds a lot like, you know, something that's taboo that was a couple millennia ago, right? And we need to not hunt during this phase of the moon. You've heard many First Nations groups talk about, you know, I'm making up an example right there. We're starting to do that in science. The scientific recommendation says don't do this during this time because, you know, this crab is breeding or whatever. It's, it's really wild. I think it's, it's, it's worth looking at at the very least. Science, me, science is catching up with a lot of uh, earth wisdom that these it, people had out of instinct because what I, what I feel that it's mm -hmm. been happening is that we are the only species, being, we're an animal mm -hmm. species that has lost what it's essential to the survival of every other animal, which is intuition. We don't operate on intuition anymore because with our, with our verbal skills, we have rationalized and killed intuition over rationalization, basically. And mm. so there's a lot of things that we wouldn't do, even though deep down we may have some feeling that tells us that we shouldn't do. 
maybe sometimes when you feel like you shouldn't eat a food and you don't know why, but your mom mm. then tells you that you have to, and then you're sick, but you had an intuition because, but you just don't know how to mm. interpret those intuition anymore because they're quiet and we are in a very loud world and we're not connected. We're not connected to the earth. We're not connected to the soil. We're not connected to elements anymore. Um, we live in boxes in front of screens. So we kind of lost the ability to communicate mm -hmm. with the world around us. So when you said sacred, what I hear also in the word sacred is that in the sacred that you don't take more than you need for that survival. 100%. That is, that is key. And that's also and, the bigger part. When it's desecrated, it's because you need one, you take 10, just in case I need it later. <laughs> there's, there's, a <laughs> there, yeah. there's a responsibility aspect to that. And this is where, like, I want to take that, like, the, you said a couple of things that I really liked. Um, and, you know, with that relationship between science and traditional knowledge, I wish I could, I, I wish everyone could see me doing this, but what I do with all of my of my students, for example, the, uh, any talk I give, I'll grab my hand, take my, your right hand, put it in the shape of an L with your thumb at the lower part and your pointer finger sticking straight up. Put that thumb on the tip of your nose. Now with both of your eyes, I'm looking at you. I can see you not doing it, my friend. Do this, do okay. it. I need, it's an experiment, right? Yeah. Look at the tip of that L. Look at the tip of your pointer finger, which should be pointing straight up with both of your eyes. Now close one eye and close the other and go back and forth and back and forth. And even though the tip of your finger is in XYZ space, not moving, mm -hmm. by changing your perspective, by changing your eye, the, your finger dances back and forth. Mm -hmm. In science, we call that parallax error, right? And that, that actually can help us you know, measure distance to stars that are moving. But it also gives one thing that science is so good about, real science, is what are your error bars? What is your science, your methodology to find the best empirical truth good at? Where does this, is it weak? You know, and you play to your strengths. There are some questions that science can't answer because science can't measure it. Yep. Embracing that, I think, is fantastic. That's what science was meant to do. And there is still no other technique to gather empirical evidence that humans have been able to come up with that I think can compete with that. However, What's outside of that scope? And another thing, like talking about volcanoes, right? On one side, science might be really good at telling you, you know, you probably shouldn't build your house there because that <laughs> volcano could, you know, science can, or like monitoring the volcano. We don't know with, with perfection when the volcano is going to erupt, but we can, you know, guess in pretty educated ways. But there's a deeper human question. And I think that that's where science is not the strong suit. And I think traditional knowledge systems happen to be really good at, which are the, the part of the human heart, how humans interact with our world. How do you face a living on a volcano, for example? How do you face a power that is great, so much greater than your own? How do you face your own death and, uh, and acknowledge the fact that, hey, I was born to die? How do you do that? How do you face infinity? That is an emotional question that I think traditional knowledge systems tend to be very, very good at answering. And what I love is when you look at, do that experiment with your finger, right? The thing that unites for me, both traditional knowledge systems and scientific knowledge is observations. The interpretations might be very different, but the observation is what unites them. And it's where do we have that overlap? And that's what I'd love about that finger exercise. Again, shape of the L on the tip of your nose, dancing back and forth. What unites those observations? And I think that that's where, that's where a lot of richness can come in, personally. That's amazing. 
Thank you. It is so deep. I just want to go back to one thing. Did you go back to the guy that told you you're wasting your time and had a conversation with him? Or did you let it go? <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 I've never thought about that, to be honest with you. It's like, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, something tells me that even if I did go back up to that guy, he would, my instinct, I can't prove this. I would just say that, oh, no, I never said that. You know, like, <laughs> probably. <laughs> so, I mean, why am I going to waste my time? It's, True. um, so I, there are you know, so many takeaways from these conversations. This one is like follow curiosity and your 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 inner passion for searching and, and the calling that you have inside. Just follow it. Follow it because it can never be wrong. Even if there was nothing, even if there was no boiling river there or you arrived and uh, the shaman decided not to take you because after looking at you, you thought, mm -hmm. no, this guy is not going to do good by us. I'm just not going to show him. Yeah, I'm sure when he was looking at you, he was mm -hmm. trying to read your energy and your soul and, and your intentions. He and, uh, he and, and Yeah, and he probably saw the energy of a childlike wonder and is like, he's never going to hurt us. He's just here to learn and we need to be in service of knowledge. So so it follow your curiosity. Um, I don't know if everybody, I'm not going to say everybody can be an Indiana Jones like you. How many, you know, for sure there's so, there, are, there must be so many other things that we still can discover, but it's pretty spectacular what you've done. And I, I think you, I hope that you do really acknowledge that it's not just an everyday thing. Even though you say I didn't, you know, it was already there, I just brought it to the people. But the way you brought it to the people and the way you tell with so much passion the story for me is phenomenal. And... Uh, I Don't love the kind. idea that you're inviting people to come to visit the the jungle and mm -hmm. to understand. And I and I think that uh, it is it, it's wonderful. I'd love to come. <laughs> you're wonderful. People well, you should go. And, and you know, it's, I only have one experience in the jungle, but that one trip changed so many things for me on so many levels. Not just the the nature the encounter, but the people and. Um, seeing such a completely different way of life in harmony with the surroundings of a really wild environment and deciding to stay there and what right do we have to even make decisions for these people when you, like I said you don't understand what it's like to live there 24-7 throughout the year disconnected although you know they do have mobile phones also which is which is also though another problem because um, it's it is it is a blessing but also it creates some 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 confusion as to or, or questioning for them as well. What what is their incentive to stay there and keep protecting and living in those environments when there is this other world that, like you said, they want to come and see Dubai, but you know, as opposed to being there and protecting, and we can do some swap and, stuff. <laughs> and this is where I, this is where I love Tashka Yawanawa. He spoke in the same session that I did. Uh, Tashka Yawanawa again. Uh, he's the chief of the Yawanawa tribe in in Brazil. And, you know, he said something that I, I think encapsulates everything so clearly and beautifully, which is we are not museum pieces. Yes. We are not museum pieces. And he's referring to the Amazonians and I 100%. I, everything that we do, how do we give people freedom to explore? I mean, well, you said yourself, when you, ex you know, maybe if, if the Willing River hadn't been there or if I hadn't gotten permission... What makes that still be successful? If I was if I was exploring, exploring means you're understanding the world around you. If I wasn't exploring and was trying to do a function, then I would have been in trouble. But um, I, I think that that's 
what can we do to give open up people's possibilities for them to choose what they want to do with their lives? I think that that's at the core of a lot of what we're doing. The choice is how do we empower people to do that? I want to see people free at the end of the day. And I'm tired of like, and this is more of a macro thing. This could be the first world. This could be the third world. This could be whatever you want. But when you have, I mean, systems that are trying to harness you to, you know, have this credit card or be, you know, be paying this tax or be paying that or whatever. I'm not an anarchist, I promise, but I, I do deeply believe that there is too much harnessing of human beings going on right now. Um, <laughs> sorry, I had, to, I, the, I had to mention that one. Um, so, I mean... We could carry on, like I said, for five hours because I think that we don't even have the time now to dive into the other side. So if you'll agree, I'd like to do a second one whenever next you have an opportunity. Doesn't I mean, we're still, we're still talking. We might one. as well. I'd, but I'd like to like another full hour just to talk about all the educational work that you're doing. And, Absolutely. And, and also your interest now in food systems and agri-tech and, and yeah. this other side, which in itself, it's it's another full universe so to close on the boiling river i just want to ask you what is the bigger vision now so this is obviously th those 300 dollars opened up for you a commitment to lifetime I, i don't you know you're not going to be detached from this until you pass the, on, the, next the honor of a lifetime and yeah, the, that, this is totally the honor of a lifetime but it is a, your lifetime is going to be intertwined with a boiling river so with that responsibility nice with that power so. and responsibility <laughs> What's the vision now for the next 10 or 20 years with this community, with this work? Uh, of course, you still, am I right to say that you still don't understand 100% why is it boiling or are we coming to a revelation soon? Uh, you know, we, again, that, that goes to part of the reason why I've held on to, so the first order answer is quite simple. It heats up because of fault-fed hot springs. We have no indication that it is a volcanic system. We have no indication that it is a system um that that is an oil field accident or something man-made um but geothermal gradient right water going deep in the earth heating up and coming back out we've said that for i've said that for many many years now are there deeper questions how hot does it get how long has that water been in the ground what is causing the sulfur smell at the sulfur at the sulfur area at the sulfur plaza on the boiling river um What about the minerals? Because even though it's so clean, there are certain points where there is mineralization. How about the microbes? Or, I mean, it looks like we've got new species, not only new species, potentially new phylum. I mean, there, how, oh, here's another one. And this one's all, this one should be published, fingers crossed, very soon. Um, it's in revision right now with, with, um, with the group. But I mean, the Boiling Rivers also seems to be one of the best, if not the best, natural laboratory in all of the Amazon to help us understand what a post-climate change impact of the Amazonia might look like. This is the hottest naturally occurring micro-ecosystem in the Amazon. The soils are at elevated temperatures because of the geothermal system for a long ways, 6.24 kilometers. Um, and so once climate change hits with all of its fury, And once temperatures rise in all of the Amazon, once the soil temperatures rise in all of the Amazon, how will plants adapt? The Boiling River ecosystem will hopefully, is hopefully actively giving us a window into that future. And this is work led by uh, Dr. Ken Feely at the University of Miami, um, Riley Fortier and another, another, some uh, others of his students. Um, so it's, 
I'm very, for me, you know, I, I had this amazing opportunity to talk to, to Dr. Jane Goodall, who is incredible. My hero, <laughs> my childhood hero. <laughs> I met her, I met her, I met her twice briefly oh my uh, to get a book signed, but you don't know, it was, I met so many famous people in, in my life and I never asked an autograph to anybody, anybody, like even <laughs> David Bowie was sitting in front of me at theater in no London way. and I couldn't care less. No way. Oh, that's amazing. But I was nine when I watched Jane Goodall's documentary oh, on Italian TV. And I turned around and I kept telling everybody for years of my life that when I grow up, I want to be like her. I want to oh, study science and I want to be out. And I want to. And everybody was like, who? Jane who? I mean, she was not famous. <laughs> Nobody knew. So and funny. in Italy, they couldn't pronounce her name. So it was yes. such a beautiful, you know, full circle moment. I, I read all her books. I followed all her work. So what did you talk to her about? I, I, we, you know, we talked about the Boiling River and I asked her for feedback. And she said that for her, everything changed for Gombe Stream National Park when people, when researchers, master students, PhD students, were coming to do their research at, the, at Gombe Stream without knowing her, but rather using her as a mere reference. So that really inspired me. And since that conversation i've been doing everything humanly possible so that it's not you know it's not just me doing research there but there's now over 50 collaborators doing research there from peruvian universities american universities uh one somebody was from european universities i mean the list goes on and we want more i want this place to be a mecca for scientific investigation so that we can know every single detail because you know i was very blessed that i got the opportunity to study here. I would not have gotten to the Boiling River on one side had it not been for Maestro Juan and the locals be opening my local eye. But on the other side, my Lumenian Peruvian side, my, you know, mestizo mainstream, culturally, you know, nationalized Peruvian side, that legend of the Boiling River is ultimately told from the conquistador's point of view too. So I think that for me, when I look back at my story, I love the fact that it is, it is a, a mestizo story, right? It mixes the yeah. colonial Boiling River legend with, an, with a native Amazonian, you know, stories and realities as well to give something more complete, a, a two-eyed view, if you will. Um, and, and that's what we want to continue doing. We want to make power, it holistic. power to your grandfather for starting telling you the stories. And I, I just think all the time, how many stories are we missing? Because we don't sit around the campfire with the older people and let them tell us stories. Just how much knowledge is being destroyed just by not engaging with the people that have wisdom and just sitting around being bored and go, tell me a story. And then, and just collect, collect for it. For the moment, mm -hmm. you can actually use it. Oh my God. It's, it's so funny that you mentioned that because literally right now, I, I just sent a message. So, we're way over time. I'm sorry about that. But out no. of the Boiling River work, what came is boiling from the Boiling River work, there are significant geothermal systems all over the world, everywhere. Everywhere there are significant geothermal systems. Almost all of these sites have legends, have stories, have cultural impact on top of phenomenal microbial communities, interesting ecology, uh, you, you know, interesting biological interactions going on there. You name it. There's a there's multiple stories to tell from multiple disciplines. 
one of the projects that I am currently working on is remapping out all of the world's hot springs. Just started a new nonprofit called the Institute for Geothermal Conservation. The idea eventually will be that, you know, we'll be able to map out all the world's hot springs, not just for the pure geothermal science of it, but also to add in the cultural stories, to add in the conservation side, to add in all of these things. And I want to invite people to, you know, hopefully to grab their phone, take the picture, you know, plug in information, share some stories about it um, in a much more citizen science way. That is the, that is the dream for 2024. Um, because I do, I do want to highlight something super important for my, for Maestro, for the guy in charge of it all. He had his deep connections telling him this thing was important. But there, were, there are so many other people, a lot of younger people in particular, or a lot of older people who no longer care about, oh, you can't make money on, any money off of old stories. What does it matter anymore anyway, right? The cultural erosion is a big deal. So, and this happens to all of us. This happens to you, to me, wherever you are. What, I, what, what my over a decade of working in, as an explorer has taught me globally, everywhere I go has an amazing story everywhere you have to find it and half of that time it is hidden in the everyday and this is gonna sound weird but i will close with this i've had two things in my life in my career go viral like truly phone off the hook more emails than i can ever answer in my life everything just exploding number one was the boiling river we are you know there were millions of views on that there were many more secondary things. I mean, there was an estimated reach of at least 600 million uh, views by the time that was all said and done, which was insane. Um, and I'm super grateful for it. But the other one, I currently live in Dallas, Texas. In fact, I went to high school here in Dallas, Texas, and there was a big flood in 2015. And there was these crazy fish that you know, got stuck in these fences at a soccer field, at a football field where I used to play um, in high school. Pictures of that, the connection of these weird-looking fish that honestly have their roots in the time of the dinosaurs, but are still in this in these wild these wild river systems underneath our bridges, right behind what we think is is civilization. That's all still there. That hasn't gone away. There are wild stories everywhere, even in Dubai. I promise you, there are wild stories even in the city of Dubai. You just have to find them. Yeah, I think we need to start a series called Sacred Stories. <laughs> Amen. We need to get a check. Let's go find them. And, you know, but you're totally right. So when I think about scientists going into these sacred lands and doing this work from a scientific perspective and engaging with the communities, the communities have, like I said, their own version of what's happening that is not scientific, but could complement incredibly. It could mm -hmm. take you a lot longer to understand what you're looking for if you don't also engage with them. And like, mm -hmm. a, like a very silly thing, but when I was at the, in the village of Palma Real in, uh, mm -hmm. next to Inkaterra, um, it started raining wildly and we had to go back to Inkaterra and it was getting dark. We were supposed mm -hmm. to leave before 4 p.m. You shouldn't really be on the river at night for many other reasons. Um, and... Uh, and then it starts raining really badly. And I, at the point I was interviewing the, the chief of Palma Real. And so I was mm -hmm. in his house. It starts raining. I'm like, oh, my God, am I going to get stuck here? Do I, can I sleep here if I can't go back? <laughs> you know, you guys have me. And he basically told me, wait a second. So th this is what my grandmother told me. Um, you wait 
and listened. So if there's going to be a thunder followed by another small thunder, then it's going to stop raining within three to five minutes. If there's only one big thunder, that's it. It could rain for a long time. And so there we were waiting with anticipation. Wow. And then here it comes, the big thunder. And then a little bit later, a tinier thunder. And boom, gone. Three minutes later, <laughs> stop raining. And we can't read these signs anymore. Do you pay, does anybody pay attention to the birds and how high or low they fly or how they're talking to each other in the morning around the trees in the houses? They can tell you stuff about what's going on. But oh. we don't have that information. So uh, from a scientific perspective, you go in with all your toolkit, but there's people that have been living with the river and with that nature for so long. And like you said, to them, it's every day. So they may not even think that. If, you, if the question is, so what can you tell me? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> That's not the right question. <laughs> so uh, how do you dig that information out of them and engage? And this is where, you know, make it fun. I have a thermal camera and it's been my favorite tool of all time because you can see heat. And when we start playing around with it and we do fun, stupid things like, oh, look, you sat there and now I see your butt print and heat and every all the little kids laugh. And it's like, ah, you know, because you, know, you wherever you're sitting, you're a mammal, yep. you're leaving hot. Yep. you know, way yes, you're leaving hot prints, um, you know, or like breathe in and we focus on your nose and we watch the cold air going into your nose and <laughs> breathe it out yeah. and it comes out hot again. And just playing, inviting people to be a part of it in starting the conversation, it yields so much. And again, it's the observations. The interpretations might be different between traditional knowledge and science. And I, and I think of it's course. very important to say we need two perspectives. And that's what I yeah. love about science because the with science the more perspectives you have the better understanding you'll have unfortunately a lot of scientists have not followed up on that and they have wanted to go for a mono perspective of only this everything has to be taken with its own error bars everything has to be taken in the context of what was this knowledge system created to do what was this methodology created to do the interpretations might be different the observations might be very sound. Here's a perfect example, one of my favorite examples. Um, I was working with these two friends of mine, um, they're the Brazilian mantis, praying mantis specialists. They were in the Peruvian Amazon with me at the Boiling River. Um, so entomology is their thing, right? And then we had a dear friend, Karina, she's a Shipibo shamaness. Uh, she's a traditional healer. And we're all hanging out. We're all friends. We're talking. And they're, they're like, yeah, we're studying praying mantises. And she goes, praying mantises? You know, the pregnancy tests. We all were kind of like, what? And and she said, yeah, well, back the tradition is you grab a, a pregnant mom. We'll take a mantis, put the mantis on the pregnant belly. And if the mantis does a this position, like holding a bucket of water, she said, it's going to be a girl. But she said, if the mantis takes this position, hold like as if it were a spear, then it's going to be a boy and the baby and you know we were all like that is a, such a cool story and then but one of the one of the entomologist guys was like one of them was thinking about it. he was like you know those observations again like whether or not that is going to tell you it's a male or female child you know i'm, I'm not going to venture into that I, yeah. I you know but the observation though and he's like modern western science did not recognize those observations until relatively recently Again, the interpretations, let's leave that aside. Yeah, that's different. Mm -hmm. Observation, rock solid. So it's 
there's a lot that we can learn from each other. Right now, we're working on a, a paper, a scientific study, with some of our indigenous colleagues looking at, you know, the world, so different geologic worldviews. I can't get into it right now, unfortunately, because it's for other reasons, but just geologic worldviews and how there's an ethnogeology aspect that is really valuable, interesting. I mean, beyond interesting, it's fascinating. It is really fascinating because even the name of the boiling river, you know, Shanai Timpishka, Shana, Shanai, right? Heat of the sun, Timpu, the verb to boil. Um, it's a hypothesis. I'm not the first person wondering why this thing was boiling, right? Shanai Timpishka, boiled with the heat of the sun. So we're trying to understand the world around us. We might be using traditional knowledge systems. We might be using modern science. We might be using the horoscopes for all I know. Humans have always tried to understand the world around us. That's just what we do. I mean, at the end of the day, it was a story from a grandfather bounced back at dinner with your aunt that took you to one of your biggest discovery, not a scientific approach that came later. Exactly. Science, was that, science was exactly telling you, not, don't go there. Don't go there. There's nothing. Don't go there. But you're right. And I would some say bad stories science. Like, go. Okay. I would say I would say Possibly, bad yeah. science was saying not to go. Good science would say explore. Good science would say ask the question. Um, science shouldn't have those limits. Which exploration is is important. Period. No boundaries. Amazing. Exactly. I love it. I love it. This is a beautiful way to end. Thank you for it. Your generosity with your time, the amazing way you tell the stories. I want to do another one whenever you can to really dive deeper in the other side, how you're taking this wider with the education, how can people participate and all that. I think that that, that requires like another full conversation. Oh, but I'm so grateful for this. And you guys are so blessed to have the time of Andres and, and so much passion and follow him. Guys. I'll put all the details in the blog. If you don't know uh, the Boiling River, there's a TED Talk at boilingriver.org is where you find all the information. There's a book that you can buy. I'll put the links as well. Um, and uh, as I said, you can visit. We'll get to that maybe in the later episode. What can we, how can some privileged, special people visit? And maybe we'll talk a little bit more about the shaman. I'm really interested about his life. And uh, yeah. what does he These... do? Because the, the protector of the Boiling River, is, it, it deserves a movie in itself. More, much more than that and there's there's that one there's some stories that well there's a lot there's just so much to tell but anyway, we'll get into that <laughs> thank you which i which i totally can, i totally can but i think you got you gotta go to bed eventually so we'll postpone this for and schedule another one very soon so thank you again for Absolutely, being with us friend. no of course thank you so much a well, big hug to you and, and i'll talk to you soon Thank you for listening to the Influencers for Good podcast. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. If so, don't forget to like and subscribe. Also check our news platform, influencersforgood.blog, for more content about our guests or to collaborate with us.